Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Interior, a large Victorian living room. The family are gathered around the latest technological marvel of the age. Yes, it is a fish tank. Look inside, look closer. A snail moving through murky water. Some weeds are waving feebly in the background. It is thrilling stuff. Children, says mother, let this tank be a reminder of the wonder of God's plan. And across town, huge queues are forming outside the public aquarium because the word on the street is that there's a new star attraction. Some trout. Cut to 1970s Florida. A fish tank enthusiast is watching his pair of clownfish with bated breath. It had been thought impossible to get marine fish like these to breed in a tank, but he has spent months building them the perfect home. He's monitored the light spectrum and chemical balance of the water. He's established filter beds and created a special diet of shrimp, algae, and chicken gizzards. Just then, the male clownfish opens its mouth, and lo, eggs pop out. Hello and welcome to Patented, it's a podcast about the history of inventions and the origins of things, brought to you from the fine folk at History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell, thanks very much for your company. There is much more to the history of fish tanks than I ever imagined, certainly than goldfish in bags that used to win at the funfair. So get ready for a really fascinating journey into the watery world of fish tanks, where we are going to meet coral and carp and snapping turtles and sharks and many more. My guest today is Samantha Muka, and she is the author of the book Oceans Under Glass, Tankcraft and the Sciences of the Sea, and it's fascinating. Enjoy. tanks fish tanks they seem so simple as to be well hardly really an invention but apparently they caused a sensation when they first appeared opening our eyes to this wonderful new aquatic world and the history of the fish tank 
it's been all about innovating and trying to understand the ecology of the world they live in with the supreme goal of keeping the damn things alive. Here to talk about the history of fish tanks is Sam Muka. She's from New Jersey. I think you're from New Jersey. Maybe I just I currently out. live in New Jersey, yeah. So I teach at the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, so right across the river from Manhattan. Did I just dream it, by the way? There was I'm sure I, I read somewhere that there was a, a giant fish tank in a hotel in Germany or something that, that like the exploded. The Berlin fish tank explosion, yes. I didn't dream that. That was a thing. Oh, goodness. It was, a, it was problematic. It was the largest freestanding huge fish tank and it was in a, a hotel in Berlin and something happened to the way that it functioned and it just collapsed. So huge amount of fish died. Luckily, no humans died. <laughs> no humans, but a lot of fish. But it was like a vast amount of water was, was released and it was crazy. like a Hollywood-esque, like if you've ever seen Mission Impossible, that type of thing where there's this like fantasy about, you know, shooting the glass and then running away from That's exactly what it looked like. It was pretty intense. Did you get lots of calls being the fish, world fish tank authority? It was like, get me Muka on the phone. <laughs> Surprisingly less than I wanted because I actually do have a lot to say about it just because it was an interesting tank. But people didn't know how to think about it. Like people struggle with fish tanks that only have fish in them. What do you mean they, how do you mean they struggle with it? We have a tendency to like not find fish cuddly. So if that tank had been full of like mammals or it had been full of like endangered species, but it was full of kind of like regular, normal, ornamental marine fish. Mm -hmm. And so a couple articles were like, these fish died and shouldn't we feel bad about it? But otherwise, people didn't actually know how to think about the incident. They didn't really know how to measure it. If no one dies and only fish die, what is the loss that we're kind of measuring as humans? That's quite an interesting philosophical thought, actually. <laughs> we talk about animal rights, I suppose. Yeah. But it's humans that assign certain animals certain rights. Yeah. And, you know, if you're a, a tiny insect, then you're not as valuable as a cuddly panda. Presumably. Well, we do have a tendency to say like things with faces. We yes. enjoy them more. <laughs> and so, I mean, people <laughs> love fish, but they also eat them. So when I started working heavily in aquariums, I would go on like interviews and talks and, and people would say, oh, we're going to go out to dinner. Do you not eat fish? I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm totally fine with it. <laughs> like, <laughs> There are very few people that work in the field that also don't kind of eat fish and things like that. And so it says a lot, right? Because zookeepers probably don't eat many of the things that they keep around. But aqu Aquarius, they'll eat a fish. <laughs> yeah, of course <laughs> they will. Good. Hey, well, listen, thanks very much for coming on the show. I, I've been thinking about aquariums recently, not just the German one that exploded in a kind of Mission Impossible kind of way, although that did bring it to my attention. Yeah. How did you get into your... Before we start on the history of the aquarium, I want to hear the history of Sam Muka first. Briefly, what was your moment of clarity? I'm a historian and sociologist of science. I went to a program where we do historical work, but we also do kind of modern day stuff. And I started out as kind of a historian of genetics and biology in the early 20th century. And one of the people that I started to study was a woman named Ida Mellon. In the 1920s, she worked at the New York Aquarium. She was a woman that was really high up at the aquarium. And so when I entered her archives, not only had no one been in them, but I just found this whole world of aquariums. And what I found was all of these different kind of communities that were intersecting with people that were using aquariums. So American mm -hmm. biology, 
people who were studying fisheries, conservation science, all of this stuff, and this huge hobbyist community. Like people mm. are just showing up to the aquarium and and they're like, hey, look at this fish I made, <laughs> right? It's fantastic. And so once I got into it, everywhere I went, I would just visit an aquarium and I would ask people for interviews and they were so excited to just show me their work. And so I just kept it up partially just because the community is so like vibrant and willing to just talk to people. You know, if you do something really cool and no one knows, you know, did you do it? So I can go to an aquarium and be like, that's cool for a totally different reason that you think it's cool, right? This is art yeah. to me. And they they dig that about me and I dig that about them. So it's a great field for me to be in because of the enthusiasm that the people I study show. That's great. Well, actually, you touched on something that's, that's interesting. If we go back to these origins of aquariums, I mean, I as far as if I if you were asked me, I would have said, well, presumably as long as there's been glass, there's been aquariums, but I don't know. Is there a kind of, is the origins of this, is, is it in science or is it in public aquariums or is it in hobbyists at home? Yeah. So it's funny too, because it's really not in any of those. If you think an aquarium is just a space that you put captive organisms to keep them alive for a really long time, it's probably in the invention of concrete, right? Or the ability to make a bowl. So we know that like ancient Greeks had these little pools that the water came in and out of and they would put fish that they caught there to keep them. It wasn't for aesthetic purposes as much as it was for keeping your food nearby, right? Ancient Chinese cultures started breeding koi really early that became modern goldfish. But glass is kind of the key to what I term the modern aquarium. And around the, what we would call the English Industrial Revolution. The proper Industrial yes, Revolution. Yes, we don't talk about we others. Did. <laughs> we did it first. <laughs> so glass becomes cheaper, right? And all three of those communities developed aquariums at the exact same time. So there isn't really actually much of a difference between those three threads. So hobbyists, and we might just call people in their house, in England... The same time that you develop these plate glass, you also develop train systems. So moms are taking their kids to the seashore and like picking up animals and putting them in these glass tanks at home to kind of teach them about how God created the earth, right? How everything fits and everything is perfect, right? For that particular reason. And then there's art, like there was a big collecting craze, right? There's a fossil collecting craze during that time. There's all of this different stuff. So that arises in the middle of the 19th century. And as people get more interested, the exact same time, public aquariums, right? Was there a kind of first public aquarium? Was It just a bit, there's, you'd be surprised how many people fight over, <laughs> over this particular <laughs> thing. In Europe, there's a lot, right? So Brighton has had an aquarium for a really long time. Berlin has had an aquarium for a very long time. And if you still go to their public aquarium in Berlin, the glass is so thick on some of their tanks because it's a very early aquarium. So I almost got sick. I was there a couple months ago and the kind of distortion that you see through their glass is so harsh. But for me, it was so historically like, oh, you haven't replaced that glass in a long time. I suppose, you know, if you're a, if you're a city and you think, oh, right, we're going to have an aquarium, there must be a demand for it. I'm just kind of wondering what that demand is. You mentioned you mentioned the sort of educational purposes and, and religious reasons, perhaps why why people wanted to look. It's a it's a fish. It, it proves God exists. It was Victorian England. Like everything had to have some purpose, or just like you know, the fish is there. It poops nitrogen. The plant uptakes it. It produces oxygen for the fish, right? This is everyone has a place and everyone has work to do to create that place, right? Philip Goss, who was this English 
writer, he wrote children's tales and he also wrote aquarium manuals, right? And they're not that different. And most of them had kind of a biblical context. To Interesting. Them. But there was a demand. I mean, presumably it was the aesthetic purpose of, of it as well. The fact that you'd have this, you'd go and see these sort of giant tanks. I mean, I've got a picture of an early aquarium and the tanks don't look that dramatic, actually. No, they're, they they're not at, very exciting. They look a bit rubbish. They're, I mean, it, it would be like you go into the grocery store to see the lobster tank like every week, which my kids do. And like, it is wondrous to them. People had never seen underwater. This was not a visual that they were used to. And we have to imagine imagine that there's not even kind of people imagining things that are seemingly real. So, you know, Jules Verne was writing about being underwater, but it's all like monstrous creatures, right? I mean, horrible octopuses that kill everyone. And so it was just very exciting, right? The technology was exciting. So in 1930, still, the Shedd Aquarium opened with no water in their tanks on Thanksgiving Day in America, and they had thousands of visitors. What do you mean they had they had no water in their tanks? They didn't even have any water. The tanks were not cured yet, so it was so just, what was the what was the technology? When you say there was lots of technology, what, what do you mean? Isn't it just sort of just sticking the plate four bits glass of glass together? Was wondrous to to people. I mean, you have to imagine we went from like people hanging fur over their windows or not really having windows. That's what to I do. Glass just being. I mean, who doesn't? It's, yeah. <laughs> people were just, I mean, they were super excited. When the Philadelphia Aquarium opened, they had like carp. They had one giant snapping turtle and that was it. And people came every single day to see this aquarium. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. the fact that that's enough. A single turtle and a single carp. It's really hard to keep fish there. I've, I've, you know, experimented over the years and I've had a fish tank and they honestly, after about a week, it just falls apart and the fish die and it's terrible and children start weeping and it's just chaos. It should make you realize how amazing it is, the things that we can keep alive in tanks, right? So the Monterey Aquarium now can keep deep sea creatures. Most of us can't keep like goldfish alive for an extended period of time, right? Can, can I ask, just to, can you take us on a little journey in terms of what goes in tanks? Because presumably fashions come and go and certain species become popular. And I remember in the kind of 1980s, there was those kind of little neon fish everyone had. And I can't even remember what they're called. It's a tetra. I think you're thinking tetra, of a tetra. <laughs> is that what I'm thinking of? They were kind of blue and they kind of were look. They were a bit kind of neon. Neon tetras, I think they were Probably called. Probably so. They're They're very popular. And they are pretty easy to keep. But they were, so. but they were quite eighties. I don't know. So tell, so from the beginning, Victorian times, what they, what did we have? Like, did we have exotic things or pretty much anything you could get? So most of what you would have at that time would be beachcombing type of things. So any type of rock or greenery that you could pick up from the beach. And because people were really interested in plants at that time, seaweed was very popular. And then fish, there were very few fish dealers. So one of the things that's also true is that at that time you have pet, you can get a purebred dog or a purebred cat, but it's very hard to get fish mail order. So you just got to go out and get whatever you want, whatever you can catch. (laughs) So whatever was knocking around at the time, but then it it gets really... I don't know, is is the kind of quest to get more and more exotic fish. And, you know, you mentioned Chinese koi and koi carp. You know, they've become very ornamental. Yeah, so about the turn of the 20th century, yeah, about 1910, you start to get dealers getting fish from Asia and bringing them over. And that's when you get like a bunch of people that are like, oh, I could really do something fun with this. So they start to make crazy looking telescope eyes and lion's mane, 
goldfish, like, and they start to have competitions. So they, they give out ribbons and every month you meet at your hobbyist group and you bring in your fish and you show them what it looks like. And then you either sell it or you trade it for the next one that you want to breed. It's not until like a little bit later, you start to get a combination of fish that would look like an ecosystem. And part of that's just difficulty. And so it's not until the 80s that you can put coral in a tank sufficiently with other fish and have it survive. It's hard. I mean, some people can do it. They're like the leaders of the field. But in the 80s, you start to see this pick up. And now a kind of coral tank that you would see on TV in like a millionaire's house or Vanilla Ice has like a show where he does tanks. Those are really new and they're really hard. Coral is really high maintenance. Yeah. So we don't see like success with coral. There's not a single coral tank that's successful until the early 60s and most until the 80s are in the um, Pacific. So they're in uh, areas where you can have natural sunlight. And part of that is just the lighting that makes coral so specific. If you wanna keep coral, you have to have a UV light that also has a particular spectrum because depending on where you are in the ocean, you have a different UV spectrum, right? And some coral take some parts of the UV and others. And so even now, as lighting gets better, you can keep more things in the aquarium. That's interesting. Presumably, from a a scientific point of view, the the ability to have major tanks that you could keep fish in changed marine biology. Suddenly, it's like you can actually have the thing you're studying in your office rather than the ocean. I would say it jump-started marine biology. So my, my general argument in life is that you don't have marine biology as we know it as a field because we just can't go out and like sit we've tried to build these underwater houses basically like tektite which was an underwater system it doesn't work very well living underwater is very difficult for humans and it still doesn't give you the access to an organism consistently that you think that it will right a jellyfish is not going to just sit there for you to do that so it it has been very useful we'll be back after this short break Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. March 2023 marks 20 years since the start of the Iraq War. The war was waged to rid the world of a brutal dictator, yet it would end marred in controversy. So why did the Iraq War go so badly wrong? And what legacies has it left behind today? Well, I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, and every Monday on the Warfare Podcast from History Hit, we're exploring a different aspect of this tumultuous period in history. We'll be asking, what was the role of the UK government and Prime Minister Tony Blair? Could the Secretary of State legally order British forces into Iraq, and could British forces follow that law? And how did ISIS rise from the destruction left behind? But ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to to know very well in uh, the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq. Join me, James Patton Rogers, on the Warfare Podcast from History Hit as we look back on one of the most controversial conflicts in recent history. Who, who are your great heroes? Who are the great innovators that you like to cite when you're talking about this? It's really interesting. One of my favorite people in the whole world is, is a, a guy named Martin Moe. And he's the first person to breed clownfish. So he developed oh, the God. method for breeding clownfish. But this <laughs> guy, okay. he's just, it's, it's insane. And it was long before Finding Dory and Finding Nemo, right? He did it in the 70s. He's the reason that you can just go and he's he's just amazing. He's just a really charismatic and lovely human. And so he started a business about breeding clownfish and then it went it went bankrupt. And so he just ended up giving a lot of information to other people. He was like, here's how to do it yourself. He was the first to breed a, a fish called the orchid dottyback. And he just wrote a whole book and published it. It's all his like laboratory notes. Do you think he like, did he copyright clownfish? Did he like, no, does he no. Really clown- I mean- so when the movie came out, he was like, wait a second. <laughs> he's just, <laughs> a, he's the coolest dude. And he's so down to earth. I mean, I think if he just did this thing, like he works out of his home. He's a retired guy now. He has a converted bathroom. And in the 70s, Reefs in the Atlantic, in Jamaica specifically, in that area, collapsed. And they collapsed because sea urchins all died. Don't necessarily know why they all died off, but they keep the algae from overgrowing the reefs. And so Martin Moe, for the last 20 years, has dedicated himself to figuring out how to breed urchins in captivity so that they can be released back onto the Atlantic Reef. So that when we build reefs there... We can keep them alive. And he figured it out, and he told a university, the University of Florida, they figured out how to scale it up, and they've been releasing them onto reefs. Oh the last my couple god! Years. Why does no one? What's his name? Martin Mo. Mo. Why yeah. does no one know about Martin Mo? He needs he needs to be elevated into hero status. If anything, I just want to be like, God, he's amazing. Have you met him? Is no, I've talked to him. You know, never meet your heroes. Is what they say. <laughs> <laughs> But he invented the clownfish. That's awesome. It's like... I mean, he the clownfish existed, but he figured out how to what we call close the cycle, which is to get a mature fish to breed and then that organism to breed. So closing the cycle means that you can breed an organism in captivity without going back and getting more from the wild. Huh. And, and so Martin Moe is the guy who... He did that with clownfish. Yeah. It does seem to be one of these subjects that... I mean, people do get obsessed about hobbies. And I know this is more than a hobby because there's you know, scientific research. But like the guy who runs my local fish shop, 
on on the Essex Road. And he's just absolutely obsessive. When you go in and sort of buy some fish food, he'll talk to you for like an hour yeah. about other things you need. Well, maybe he's just selling me stuff because I'm <laughs> an idiot. But no, he's really into it. You know, he'll talk about, he'll talk to you for hours about what you need and how to do this. And this is the this is the kind of I stopped going there to be honest. Well, that's like most looking. of your fish died. <laughs> <laughs> they died very rapidly. Yes, out of out of shame. It's funny. We call them, or at least I call them. There is a sense of professional hobbyists, which is totally different. So you can be an amateur hobbyist. You get a tank and you follow like regular parameters and maybe your fish live and then maybe they die and that's okay. But you go like, okay, whatever, that's that's it for me. Professional hobbyists are people that are known in the hobbyist community. They want to push the field. They want to develop these things that are just amazing. And what's useful is to not differentiate between scientists, hobbyists, and, and public aquarists. So a lot of people who are public aquarists started as hobbyists. And then they got so excited <laughs> that they went and volunteered for a really long time. Is it quite, is it, is it sort of cross disciplines where you get the, the, the sort of the biologists talking to the engineers, talking to... The group that talks the least to the other ones are the academic researchers. And, and part of that is just because usually in their laboratory, there is a tinkerer that deals with the tanks that is not the head researcher. So as long as the tanks are running fine, they don't like to worry about it too much. Um, and that's the person that will have a lot more conversation with hobbyists or public aquarists. But in general, it's usually because they're coming from the same area, which is a lot of people start out as hobbyists and then they go, okay, well, I'm going to go get a PhD. Great. But you didn't do, you went to hobbyists, were you? Were you a hobbyist? No, I've no. never kept aquaria. <laughs> You must okay. Just very quickly, goldfish. I, I don't. Certainly in the UK, when you went to the fun fair, you'd hook a duck on a on a stick with a hook, and you'd win a goldfish in a bag. Where did goldfish come from? I mean, that specific goldfish, all that tradition of yeah. winning a fish, and then you get it home, and of course you don't have a bowl to put it in, and it's all and it's chaos. Poor goldfish. Now I imagine them screaming, which is probably not a great thing <laughs> to say. I'm like, oh my god, it's so cool. The goldfish is just amazing. So they started out really early. I'm talking like 50 AD in China. They moved to Japan, and then in about 1550, a book appears in France of these really beautiful, fancy koi, and and England and France and and most of Europe become interested in them as kind of this aesthetic piece of class, right? So uh, as much as they're importing any other animal, goldfish are there. But around the turn of the 20th century, when hobbyists get a hold of them, they start to proliferate. And they're cheap. They're inexpensive. And they're really pretty for a freshwater fish, right? So most freshwater fish are kind of drab. And we hadn't discovered cichlids yet. Cichlids will just attack anything that's in a tank. They're kind of an African freshwater fish. They're beautiful, but they're really mean and fighting fish are the same like they have beautiful tails but they also will attack each other so goldfish become this really popular thing for winning at fairs and stuff because they're easy they're beautiful and they're actually really gentle and lovely kind of creatures that that'll eat just about anything and we're, we're kind of guilt free we, you know we touched on this at the beginning we're kind of guilt free with a goldfish if yes. you kind of drop your goldfish on the bus on the way home there's minor panic but you get over it relatively relatively quickly which is possibly not very fair 
Do goldfish, do they only have, you know, the three second memory? Is that nonsense? You know, people have been studying fish memory for a while and they do say that that they do okay, but it's it's one of those things that it's hard to understand what fish know. I don't think they have theory of mind, do they? They're not, they don't, they're not no, aware of that. No, but they are own. trainable, which is so exciting. They are. God, I remember I did, a, I did a film about this years and years ago on a TV show and we taught a fish to play football. You can do a lot. So if you think about these huge tanks they have at aquariums, every one of those animals eats a different food. And so they train them to come to a different symbol. So you have like a huge like shark. You can train them when you drop like this star into the tank and they'll come straight to the star and that's where they get their food, right? And if you don't do that, if you just shove a bunch of food in the tank, it'll ruin the, the water quality. So you have to train you have to train the fish to do that. And they're very trainable. I mean, it's not easy. I'm not pretending that it's easy. It's not something I do, but it's certainly something that they do. Yeah, we um, we trained a goldfish to play football. Yeah, it wasn't very good at football, but it was a little <laughs> plastic. It was a little plastic football thing that you put in the tank, and I can't remember what happened. Again, though, right? It makes you feel pretty bad because you're like this fish. <laughs> I could train it to play, you know, football, and then of course it will die very quickly. And I think part of that is that like fish also do have really small life cycles in comparison to other animals, right? So there's less kind of attachment than there might be otherwise. Although some fish have, you know, there was a a grouper the shed aquarium in illinois that was like 110 years old so yes there's there's a fish in i think in maybe in bristol university and i, f- I forget that's like you know ridiculously old yeah Isn't they live it? a really long time so <laughs> what's the craziest thing you've seen in a tank that's a great question i've seen there was so there's a tank that i worked with in florida and there was this little fish in the tank they they're like they build these burrows and um, he was getting bullied by his, his. so he, he wanted to date this other girl fish and she chose the bigger fish and they had their own burrow and they kept making him move spaces. So this poor fish like every day would get a new burrow and, and he would dig it out and spit all of this gravel everywhere. I got super entranced by the drama, but also by the idea that this was like a, an ecosystem that we were just like fa- facilitating in some sense. Like this aquarium was where they would live their whole lives and this whole like desperate housewives drama would play out and it would be so in that sense it was really weird i was like wow that's odd there are some things you can't keep in tanks and i think about those quite often what can't you keep in a tank you can't keep a a a man of war in a tank why well they're Um, a bit they're a bit they're a bit kind of they spread themselves out a bit they're very long and anytime they touch the side of something they just release goo they just It's just awful. So you can't really keep them. So people who study them, they will often wait by the phone and someone will say, oh, there's like a, because man of war also, they don't swim, they just drift. And so, and they'll say like, okay, and they'll go and get them and they will put them into tanks, but they only have a certain amount of time before you can, before they just die. Like you can't keep a great white in a tank, obviously, so. Unless you're Damien Hurst. Well, I mean, keep (laughs) is, is the word there. I mean, even that, gosh, it feels less exciting to look at than it's it quite used inter- to, right? Yeah, it's quite interesting, though, that, that Damien Hurst shark and formaldehyde, because it only makes sense contextually because we have things like aquariums. Yeah, yeah. The fact that it is in a tank and it is a shark and it's the, the size of the tank. There was this architectural competition a couple of years ago in New York. The city had bought this like line of buildings near Wall Street. And they were going to turn it into a public art or like group exhibit of some sort. And one of the finalists was someone who wanted to build that a whole city block 
of aquariums and fill them with sharks. And they were like, see, it's a joke because it's Wall Street. And I was like, <laughs> you can't do it. <laughs> but like, it would, can you just imagine walking down New York and you're just faced with like a wall of sharks? That would be totally interesting to me. Well, we're fascinated. We have a particular fascination with sharks. They do get a big draw until people get in there and they're like, oh, not all sharks are really cool. <laughs> like, yeah. like that one's just boring and it sits yeah. on the bottom, right? Like who cares? But the biggest draw besides sharks are like seahorses are a big draw. Jellyfish are a big draw. And they are also very hard to keep, both of those, seahorses and jellyfish. It's a very human thing to do, isn't it? It's a very human thing to collect things and to <laughs> impose ourselves on, on nature and to collect and to classify and to put into boxes. It seems to be a thing we like doing, not just fish, but generally in life. And we like pretty things, right? Yeah. So it has a certain jewel box effect. You get a pretty fish, you keep it there, and it will move around for you. So, Sam, listen, thank you so much for stopping by. It's been a pleasure and an education and it's been absolutely lovely to have you on the show. So thank you very much for thank chatting. For I'm, I'm going to never look in the aquarium in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> I shall think of you. Oh, well, I mean, think of Martin Moe. That's what will. Martin Moe <laughs> and his clownfish. There you go. Next time I see Finding Nemo, which will be never. I'm never going to watch Finding Nemo again. It's Finding Dory is a little bit better, but a little more confusing. <laughs> thank you. So there we go. You now know everything there is to know about looking after fish in tanks and the history of aquariums. Thank you very much for listening. Maybe that's inspired you to go down to your local aquarium and start a new hobby. Maybe you could buy a, start off with a goldfish in a little bowl and move up from there. If you've enjoyed this show, then don't forget to go back and listen to other episodes too. And don't forget to introduce it to your friends and family. And very importantly, if you've got a suggestion for a topic we should cover, a hobby perhaps, or an invention, or a thing, or something you've always wondered about, you can email us at patented at historyhit.com. And we would love to hear what you have in mind. We've had some brilliant episodes that we've done from listeners' ideas. So do get in touch. I look forward, as ever, to your company next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive 
and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Volk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.